Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Emily, and I use pronouns like they, them, theirs. And I'm Pastor Kay, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Rory Roloff, and my pronouns are he, him, his. In this episode, we'll discuss Ascension Day, also known as that weird Thursday thing that sometimes gets switched onto a Sunday, which this year falls on May 18th, though it may show up for either of the Sundays surrounding it. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. For our Ascension Day episode, we are excited to have Rory Roloff with us today. Rory works in technology and in his spare time is a amateur UFO researcher, and he is also married to me, mm-hmm. as you might have guessed. Okay. Also, we're doing UFOs for the deep dive. Because it's Ascension, and our two previous deep dives for Ascension were what happens to the human body as it rises through the atmosphere, and at what point would it die, and the mechanics of flight. And so UFOs just seem to arise naturally out of this. <laughs> as you might it's like it ascended through the chaos. Hmm. Indeed. <laughs> so, Rory, can you tell us what is a UFO? And assuming that there are probably different versions of that, how do you understand what they are? So the phrase UFO originally, and to a lot of people, means exactly what the acronym stands for, Unidentified Flying Object. Now, that implies a few things. It implies that it is, in fact, a physical object in the air. In recent parlance, the phrase UAP, or Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, has kind of begun to be used. But in the kind of common parlance, it's going to mean something in the sky that people do not recognized as being an aircraft, a natural phenomena, something that is there but is not, you know, categorized according to our understanding. I think most mm-hmm. people hear it and they're going to think extraterrestrial, they're going to think aliens, yep. but in reality, it, the term UFO encompasses a much broader range of phenomena than is that aliens coming from another planet to Earth. Hmm. Okay, so then when it comes to UFOs or UAPs, how do we, a little kid is going to call maybe an airplane a UFO, right? Like they don't know what it is mm-hmm. or, you know, a spy balloon, for example. <laughs> or someone's poor graduate project that got shot down because someone thought it might be Chinese. Yeah, any of those. But how do we then classify if it is a UFO or UAP? Like it's not just an individual person doesn't know what this thing is, right? Like who has to classify it? Or is it really just anything we don't know? So it really is a definition of exclusion in that once you identify it as something, whether it's a spy aircraft, a balloon, swamp gas, as the famous explanation goes, it ceases to be (laughs) the UFO. Now, one of the most famous kind of categorizations, and there are a lot of different ones, comes from Mm -hmm. the man who originated the phrase swamp gas, a UFO Mm -hmm. researcher government at the time named Dr. J. Allen Hynek. He is the one who came up with the close encounter scale, probably made famous by close encounters of the third kind. Ooh. Yep. So this is basically a way to categorize UFO sightings without having any necessary definition of what it actually is it simply says what it is not Hmm. dr heinig's scale despite there being close encounters of the third kind there are actually six ways to classify it and it starts with something as simple as nocturnal lights literally just lights in the night sky Hmm. 
that would be by far the most common kind of UFO sighting. And that could be, and as it implies, not necessarily anything extraterrestrial, just somebody seeing an unusual light in the night sky. So like if somebody sees maybe a satellite, for example. By far the most common UFO misidentification is somebody sees a satellite tracking across the night sky, which if you've ever seen one, is actually really cool. It moves really fast, it's really way brighter than a star, but this is one of the things that tends to rule out a UFO sighting being something out of the ordinary. People see a light, it moves on a ballistic motion across the sky. Mm-hmm. Where UFO sightings begin to get interesting is when you move up in the classification scale. Mm-hmm. Dr. Hynek's next classification is something called daylight disks. That is, UFOs seen in the daytime, which generally have either a disk or an oval shape to them. Mm-hmm. He moves upwards from there to UFO reports that have radar confirmation. Basically, the idea being the further up on this scale that you go, the harder it is to explain as they saw a plane, or they saw a satellite, or they saw, you know, various Mm -hmm. kinds of natural lights that might be in the night sky. So where it gets to objects that are, or UFOs that are much more difficult to explain away as natural phenomena is the close encounter of the first kind, which is a visual sighting of an unidentified flying object seemingly less than 500 feet away that shows an appreciable angular motion and considerable detail. That is, you see the light, and the light then moves and changes direction, which is something that satellites don't do. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Moving upwards from there, a close encounter of the second kind is a UFO event in which a physical effect is alleged. This could be the interference of a car where the or electronic device, animals reacting, someone experiencing paralysis or heat or discomfort, or where there's some kind of physical effect left on the ground, scorched vegetation, chemical trace, basically where it's impossible to say, oh, this was just a mirage, or this mm-hmm. was just a satellite flying in a weird direction. Mm-hmm. And then finally, close encounter of the third kind, which for anyone who has seen the movie will know is UFO encounters where an animated entity is present. And the phrasing of that is chosen very carefully because when these events are alleged, they could be humans, literal direct humans getting out, humanoids, robots, all manner of anything that walks on two legs, four legs, any number of legs. Or no legs. Like so, giraffes. I don't. I am not aware of a UFO where a giraffe got out. I am aware of at least one where a fish person got out, which was Ooh. just absolutely bizarre. Wait, what? Half human, half fish gets out, walks around, goes back in the UFO, and then flies off. That's like some sort of Jonah stuff right there. <laughs> one thing that people learn as they kind of get into UFOs and investigate them is, first, the vast majority of UFO sightings are absolutely misidentification of natural phenomena, misidentification of aircraft, somebody making it up. The vast majority of the things that you see reported, and I would even potentially toss the fish-human sighting into this, are (laughs) something terrestrial, whether it's somebody who's maybe a bit unwell making something up, maybe somebody hoaxing something. But there is, at the core of this, and where I find it very interesting, there is a core of sightings that resist conventional explanation, (laughs) where 
maybe it's a particularly credible witness, maybe it's a mass sighting where something happened that is generally inexplicable. I don't may not know what it is. In fact, I personally have no idea what the phenomena actually is, if it even is one thing. But there are these incidents that come up over and over again throughout you know, time where you look at them and go, I don't know what that is, but I know that none of the skeptical explanations make sense. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. And just because my like mathy brain is confused, mm-hmm. the close encounter scale goes from one to six, but also one to three? One to three. Okay. Generally, the first close encounter one, two, and three will be considered genuine close encounters. Oh, okay. However, most UFO reports don't fall under one, two, or three. People don't get within 500 feet of an object, let alone see, you know, anything. It's just a light in the sky or maybe a disc in the sky. And so you have, generally, they would be called close encounter zeros. And that would be nocturnal lights, Uh maybe seeing an object in the sky, maybe something being tracked on radar that is not otherwise witnessed. Okay. Thank you. That's really helpful for, you know, my ability to categorize ufo stories okay so we are of course nerds at church so we talk a lot about like different genres in the bible are there genres of ufo stories or like genres of alien sightings yeah i would say absolutely so working within the ufo field there are stories that seem to support ufos being an intelligence visiting us from another world. That is, a physical craft flies into the atmosphere, interacts with people physically, flies off. That would definitely be one kind of genre. Sometimes these stories will even include you know, the craft approaching very close, the craft being seen by what we would call credible observers. Mm-hmm. Pilots, police officers, military, trained observers, I think. I mean, I don't know that I would trust a police officer's account, but okay, continue. Well, the one I have prepared to talk about in depth (laughs) is a sighting from a police officer, actually. I wouldn't necessarily trust them, but there are very good reasons to trust this person in particular. The fact that he is a police officer actually lends some credibility to his testimony because he literally lost his job over it. Oh, okay. Or technically he was harassed out of his job over it. Rather interesting. Now, as for other genres, there is something that you would broadly call the experiencer phenomena as well. So this gets out of what we'd call a UFO, an unidentified flying object, and gets into humans, people making contact with something from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Typically, as you go back, they would frame themselves as being from you know, Venus or Mars or things like that. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the stories would be framed as being from another planet once we find out Mars and Venus are uninhabitable back mm-hmm. in the 70s. And so this genre involves, you know, people being contacted by these beings. And there are complicated cosmologies that have been built out of these galactic federation types of aliens. And then you have a third genre kind of very broadly in these broken up into a lot of different ones, which is generally something that would be called high strangeness. Hmm. That would be a the grouping of UFOs into a wider paranormal phenomena. For example, aliens and Bigfoot, hmm. which end up coming up together in stories more often than you'd think. Really? Oh, yeah. 
There's a wonderful story. The Small Town Monsters production company does a movie called Invasion at Chestnut Ridge, which involves UFOs landing. Bigfoot's getting out. One of the humans has a rifle and shoots at the Bigfoot, which are apparently bulletproof and make a metallic pinging noise when shot. <laughs> so like, like said, Iron Man no, got some No debunking, fur. but it's, it's, a, it's an incredible story. Yeah. Hmm. It sounds like a great sci-fi channel movie. <laughs> it's true. Exactly. And a lot of the parts of High Strangeness, there's pieces of it that would get into what would seem like poltergeists or ghosts or things. The kind of a wider theory of the paranormal that encompasses UFOs is just a part of it. So there is friction within the UFO world over these different genres, these different kind of types of UFOs, because some people are very invested in saying, no, UFOs are nuts and bolts. They're a physical craft coming from somewhere. They're talking with somebody. And then you have a spectrum, just like perhaps you would have between atheists and Christians, that run all the way to, no, UFOs are entirely spiritual or metaphysical. They don't interact with the real world. And there's everything in between. There are researchers who would believe that there is a combination of our human perception and technology so these stories kind of run the gamut, different genres or different types of, you know, stories. And then within each of these, there are, you know, different genres of aliens that I could go into as well. Hmm. Fascinating. So Rory, there's a UFO story. I mean, you have a handful of favorites, but there is one in particular that oh, you yes. like to tell because it includes a surprising amount of corroborating evidence that debunks some of the standard theories about UFOs being the figments of the imaginations of drunk people. And so could you share this one with us, please? Mm. Absolutely. So the story that I'm going to share, and I know, be careful about trusting police officers, but at the same time, this one takes place in 1964 on Friday, April 24th, and the story begins at about 4.45 p.m. in the afternoon. The witness of this one is Sergeant Lonnie Zamora. He's a 30-year-old deputy marshal from Socorro, New Mexico, which is a small town on US 85, about an hour south uh, Albuquerque. And mm -hmm. The story begins here with Lonnie Zamora attempting to get into position to pull over a speeding car. So he's just on the outskirts of town when his attention gets diverted from the speeder to a thin column of motionless bluish-orange flame in the southern sky. He would go on to describe it later as being shaped like a funnel or a welder's torch where it's thinner at the top than at the bottom. So imagine a welding torch pointing downwards colored in blue. He had his car window rolled down, and he observed that the top of the flame was flat and that he couldn't see the bottom because it was obscured by the terrain. <laughs> At about the same time he observes the flame, he hears a loud noise that lasts approximately 10 seconds. He describes this as a roar and not a blast, and not at all like a jet or a rocket. And as I mentioned, this town of Socorro is right on the edge of the White Sands military base testing ground. So he had heard and seen a lot of jets and rockets, and he knew it was not like that. Hmm. Uh, the noise itself started higher in frequency and then went to a lower frequency before it ceased altogether. Now, because this flame that he had seen was in the direction of a dynamite shack that was owned by the mayor of Socorro, Zamora believed that the dynamite shack had exploded. So he, at this point, 
does not believe anything weird has happened other than the mayor's dynamite shack exploded because that's something that happens in Socorro, New Mexico in 1964. <laughs> he just thinks, oh, you know, something exploded. It's my responsibility to go take a look at this. So he breaks off his pursuit and he goes to investigate. In the story, they say that Zamora actually knew who it was that he was following because this is how small this town is. <laughs> He actually could name the person behind the wheel. And so basically, I think he just kind of said, oh, I'll get him later. <laughs> but basically, as he's driving, he's kind of picking his way through undeveloped areas. He comes to a spot on the road where he has to go up a like about a 45 degree bank to get off of the paved road and up onto kind of this gravel trail that descends towards where this sighting happened. Mm -hmm. He takes, because he's driving in a 1960s car, he turns off the road, and his car actually takes two or three tries to get up off the road onto this and out. And you can still see to this day, if you go onto Google Street View, like the exact spot where he left the road. There's, little, there's a tiny little memorial, the only thing that even talks about this. The town has not embraced this at all. But there's a little memorial that's put up in the 90s, the 2000s, kind of showing this spot. And you can see how hard it would be to get an actual like car up and off the road. And it is during this time when he's trying to negotiate up this gravel embankment that the sound and the, the flames disappear. He never actually witnesses them hearing, but he knows where the mayor's dynamite shack is. He knows the trail to it. So he finally gets up onto this. And then okay. as his car finally makes it over the hill, he kind of points his car down this gravel trail. And a couple of seconds later, he sights an object. So... He sees it for a couple of seconds, and what he believes it is, is an overturned car, which he describes as basically imagine if a car overturned, and like, it was resting on two points on the ground, one being the hood, and one being either the trunk or the engine. So imagine the car kind of sitting at about a 45 degree angle. Oh. Now, mm -hmm. yep, he sees something. It sees it for a couple of seconds, and he also sees two figures around what he thinks is a car wearing white coveralls and he thinks he sees one of them kind of start at his appearance like oh somebody just saw Oops. us now the way the terrain works and you can go on google and actually see the terrain and match this up as i did to all of these observations mm -hmm. kind of gets this glimpse of this but the trail he's going rounds a bit of a taller hill so he sees the figures for about two seconds and then for about 30 to 45 seconds his view of this is obstructed as he's kind of going on this gravel road rounding this hill. And as he kind of comes back into view as he goes around this hill, about 30, 45 seconds later, the figures are gone. He would, for the rest of this encounter, see no more human humanoid figures. Hmm. But Zamora follows the trail for as far as he could, and he eventually, and kind of as he rounds this corner, he stops uh, about 100 to 150 feet from the object. So... This is something that, as I'm talking about this story, is very kind of interesting to keep in mind. He is, at this point, 100, 150 feet away. So to put that into, you know, Harlan's for at least American audiences, he is, yep, he is close enough where he could, if he were, you know, a good quarterback, he could throw a football and hit this thing. Mm -hmm. Sure. Now, what he sees as he turns and stops his car is an egg-shaped object. It's a dull aluminum white not chrome, and it is sitting on the ground on girder-like legs. Zamora could only see two of them, but kind of from his, you know, position understanding, he would assume there were more of them that he couldn't see. What is a girder-like leg? Imagine like a, tri like a tripod. Oh, okay. Gotcha. But a, a girder would be like an I-beam. Okay. So, like, strong 
kind of a very common mm. yeah. structural support element. Sure. Okay. So basically resting on not a tripod, but like four legs, but that kind of legs that stick out and extend into the ground. Okay. So he sees the object resting on the ground. As he exits his patrol car, he actually knocks the radio on his handset out of the holder. He jumps back in the car to put it back in its place, and when he does, he hears two or three loud thumps coming from the direction of the object, which he interprets later as a door either being opened or closed. Imagine, like, a metal hatch opened or closed and dung, 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 kind of a thunking noise. Sure. He fixes the handset, gets out of the car, and... At this point, he doesn't want to admit it. You can listen to him describing this. There's you know, surviving interviews you can find online. He doesn't want to admit to being freaked out, but he's clearly pretty freaked out. Yes. He's not sure what he's seeing. He gets out, and he actually begins approaching the object. So hmm. now he is positioned kind of at the top of this arroyo that this thing is in. And the site is still, you can, kind of, you can still see it. There's still like stones marking this site today. Basically, this object, whatever it was, had parked itself at the lowest point geographically in the surrounding area. Hmm. Made it really hard to see unless you were right on top of it. Yeah. Uh, but So he gets out of the car. His car is actually about 20 or 30 feet higher than the craft itself, which is down the hill. Mm-hmm. So he gets out, and he's 100 to 150 feet away, and he actually approaches, and he gets about 50 more feet closer. So at this point, he is you know, 50 to 100 feet away from this thing when the object begins to emit a noise. And he recognizes this noise. It is the same noise that he had heard when he had seen the column of flame in the sky. Mm-hmm. He watches it for a couple of seconds as he's kind of approaching. He hears the noise, and then he sees smoke and flame begin to emerge from underneath this object. And it's that same bluish-orange kind of coloration, but, you know, it's on the ground. At this point, Zamora, who was a veteran of the Korean War, thought the object was going to explode and his military training kicking in, mm-hmm. he literally flings himself to the ground. So Natural reaction. Yeah, it's actually a good reaction. If he had thought sure. an artillery shell was coming in or a grenade was going to explode, getting down lets the explosion go over the top of you. A couple of seconds later, it doesn't explode, so he gets up, turns around, and runs back towards his patrol car. So he's kind of running towards his car, and his idea, as he says later, was he was going to go and shelter behind his car. But he rounds the corner of the patrol car, and he bashes his leg against the fender of the car and goes sprawling. So he, at this point, loses both his glasses and his sunglasses. So take from that what you will. And he literally gets up and just, without his glasses, begins running as fast as he can away from this thing, he eventually gets to a point in the terrain where he's on the opposite side of a hill. So basically, think of it like if you're in a trench, he gets on the other side of this because he still thinks this thing is going to explode or do something. Mm -hmm. He eventually flings himself to the ground on the other side of this hill, turns around, and covers his head. Just puts his hand over his head, and then, after a few seconds, the roaring noise goes away. So... He's met with this just absolute eerie silence. He's still covering his head. He's looking down. And he looks up after a couple of seconds. And now he sees the egg-shaped object. There's no more legs or girders underneath it. It is hovering completely silent, basically at eye level with him. So probably 20, 25 feet off the ground, but absolute eye level with him. And he describes it as perfectly silent. He sees on the craft 
some kind of a red set of markings or insignias on it. Those become kind of important when you get into the investigation of it, mm -hmm. but clearly a logo of some kind. He sees the object, just watches this for several seconds. There's no smoke, there's no flame under it, there's no noise, and after a couple of seconds, several seconds, the object begins moving off. So same eerie silence. It goes out over the horizon, and it just literally begins following the terrain, kind of undulating, bobbing up and down as the terrain goes, and it passes out over the horizon, covers a distance of about six miles in just a couple of minutes, and then it's gone. And that is the end of the sighting. Now, you said he wore glasses. Correct. He wore glasses up until the very end when mm -hmm. he lost them as he was running away from it. Okay. Yes, but he could see the egg-shaped object and the insignia on it, despite not having his glasses on by that point? Correct. My understanding was he was farsighted. Okay, I was going to say, on a scale of me to K, what is his prescription strength? <laughs> That was something I tried a lot to be able to pin down, and I never could. Okay, interesting. Like, But it's worth pointing out, most of the sighting, with the exception of whether he could actually see the logo itself or not, took place with his glasses yeah. on. But, dear listeners, if you want to know more about eyesight, you can check out our deep dive into eyesight from yes. Lent this year, which we will link to in our episode description. This is fascinating. Okay, and this all took place during the daytime? It started at 5.45 and in April and was over by closer to 6. P.M.? The entire incident happens very quickly. Okay. Because I, like, as you were describing it, the two things that stuck out to me was, like, it really sounded like the pillar of flame in Exodus, right, where God is accompanying the Israelites mm -hmm. during the Exodus with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of flame by night. And I was like, oh, maybe that's what the pillar of flame was. And mm -hmm. then the egg shape, I was like, now that sounds like Eve from Wally, but like bigger. <laughs> so that's where the, my mind yes, is. Yes, the egg shaped UFO that can fly silently is very much a genre or type of UFO that comes up again and again Sure. So after the sighting, I think that's when all the corroborating stuff starts coming in. Oh, there's more. Correct. Oh, so the investigation into this is one of the reasons that this is one of the more perplexing UFO cases. Because as I kind of pointed out, this takes place at, in Socorro, New Mexico. Now, Socorro, New Mexico is actually home to a Part of the White Sands base, they call it Stallion Site, or it was called Stallion Site at the time. Mm. There is a massive, like, working presence of the military in Socorro. So the investigation kind of begins a little interestingly because basically Zamora tries to get his radio operator to see it. He gives bad directions. The radio operator doesn't see it, but he calls one of his friends, a patrolman for the New Mexico State Police named Sergeant Sam Chavez. Mm -hmm. And he calls him to the scene because he's, at this point, he won't admit it in the story, but he is absolutely freaking out about what he's seeing, Colonel. Yeah. He calls his friend one. over, and very understandable. Sergeant Chavez pulls up, and Zamora is perspiring heavily and has noticeably turned pale. Zamora asks him, do I look strange? And to which Chavez replies, you look like you've seen the devil. To which Zamora replies, well, maybe I have. Yeah. So this is interesting because 
can see a little bit in the beginning. He doesn't really go in deeper into this, but he clearly adds at least potentially a religious dimension to his sighting. And you can see this coming up because after Sergeant Chavez does his investigation, which basically involves, you know, looking into it and kind of just making sure his friend isn't hallucinating or seeing something, Mm -hmm. Lonnie Zamora goes to report it. But before either of them go to report it, they both go to see their priest first. Mm. Hmm. Hmm. It happens a couple of times during this that both of them are devoutly religious and they actually go to their priest for guidance. For obvious reasons, we don't really have information about what they told the priest or what the priest told them. But between going and discussing important events or between meeting with people, both Lani Zamora and Sam Chavez talk about getting guidance from their priest. I mean, they're devout Catholics, which is an assumption. but (laughs) Sure. And then so once they go to report it to the chief of police, Mm -hmm. a guy named Polo Pineda, this is where the investigation really begins getting interesting. Because within 90 minutes of the incident happening, the FBI and the Army are on the scene investigating. Oh. So, yes. So an FBI agent by the name of Burns drives down from Albuquerque, which is a 60-minute drive away. And bear in mind, so... 90 minutes after the investigation happens, an agent based in Albuquerque is already yeah. on the scene. 30 minutes is a quick turnaround to get somebody. Yeah. Exactly. And at the same time, within that same right. 90 minutes, the commander of Stallion Site from White Sands, who lives in Socorro, gathers up a group of men. The impression that I get is it's literally whoever he's got around him grabs as many guys as he can, and they go out and investigate. So within 90 minutes, they're at the site of the incident with Lonnie Zamora looking into what happened. Hmm. And what they see corroborates everything that they kind of described in kind of the narration of it. They see the indentations in the ground. They see the charred vegetation. It's literally still smoking by the time they get there. One of the more interesting things about it, though, they can observe these things smoking, but when they go to actually touch them and investigate them, they're ice cold. Huh. Weird. They can see weird burn patterns in the ground. So if you think about, like, a rocket lifting off from a location, everything is going to be burned kind of outwards from where the rocket is. Yeah. But all they see are these little, like, sporadic spots of vegetation burned, but, like, some of the vegetation between it is unburned, and even on like a single piece of vegetation, some of it is burned and some of it isn't. Huh. They bring a Geiger counter, because this always gets asked in these cases, and there's no unusual radiation <laughs> present. So nobody lights up a Geiger counter. They do, however, see four distinct indentations in the soil, 8 to 12 inches wide, 3 to 4 inches deep, in a roughly kind of rectangular configuration. Okay. There are still to this day, they actually build stone circles around where these indentations were. And at least as recently as a decade ago, those stone circles were still in place at this site. The Army and the FBI kind of canvass the area, and they find ear witnesses, so people who heard the same noise, Mm -hmm. but they don't find any eyewitnesses who saw the flame. Although the local police do report that they had people calling in. So they said they had three Three people call in to report the column of flame, presumably for the mm-hmm. same reason Zamora went to investigate. But because the calls, quote, weren't logged properly, oh. they have no idea who actually made the call. Presumably, they just they didn't think to take down the name 
of the person doing the reporting or anything like that. Huh. But everyone from Zamora to Chavez to Lopez to Captain Holder to Agent Burns, they all kind of were operating under the assumption, at least at the start, that this was a secret aircraft. So mm-hmm. Zamora and Chavez kind of report and kind of say, hey, something was flying in White Sands. It landed here. We saw it. We kind of want to let you know. But then when Captain Holder gets involved, so he's the commander of a part of White Sands, presumably he's, you know, privy to at least some of what's going on there. Basically, this entire investigation proves out no one in the U.S. military is willing to cop to actually being a part of this. And a lot of their investigation Mm -hmm. was basically asking around to various military bases, defense contractors, basically saying, okay... Who landed out here? Which one of you wants to fess up? And none of them would. And so I can go further into the investigation, but basically one of the reasons this is such a compelling UFO case to me is what I described is massively confirmed by the investigation that happens not just from these people, but also shortly after the rather famous UFO investigation project that the Air Force undertook, Project Blue Book. They get involved, and that's how Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who I talked about with the Close Encounters scale, he personally investigated this case. And his story in ufology is one that's really interesting, and especially kind of to practice back a little bit towards kind of the religious side of things. So he is a bit of a Paul-like figure Hmm. in the UFO world. Originally, Dr. Hynek was assigned to Project Blue Book, which is the Air Force's literal UFO investigation program. So he's an astronomer. He worked for this UFO project, Blue Book, kind of doing investigation into UFOs. And his whole deal was he was the scientific advisor who is supposed to debunk everything that's going on. When somebody sees something, he's supposed to be the one they call in to go, oh, no, no, you actually saw Venus. And so his whole deal was ufologists hated him at the start because he was all about, I'm going to disprove everything that's going on. And slowly over the course of 15, 20 years of looking into UFOs, he becomes a believer in UFOs. And he actually cites the Zamora incident as being one of the incidents that really led him to conversion from skeptic to believer, where he really takes on later in his life, promotes a variety of different kind of hypotheses as his kind of thinking involves and his investigations evolve into kind of what is the actual nature of the phenomena. But his conversion from persecutor of ufologists to (laughs) UFO evangelist definitely has a very Pauline kind of track to it. (laughs) There is no specific road to Damascus moment for him where he converts, but this one is one he cites because if you look at what's kind of been presented here, basically... Everyone who investigates Zamora kind of determines he is a straight-laced person. He's not prone to flights of fancy. He is not the kind of person who's going to make something up. Some of them would go so far as to kind of paint him as being a bit more of a simple guy, that he wouldn't have the intellectual curiosity to make up something like this. He rather famously said the most annoying part of this whole thing was he didn't get to write his full quota of tickets for the day because this happened. And that made him mad. (laughs) Ooh, which like so reveals a, a whole lot I'm just gonna about say. like, yeah, ticket quotas are terrible things anyway, but yes, they are. <laughs> this is fascinating. I'm just going to say real quick that I love your like Pauline 
connection. Absolutely. And you really do see with Dr. Hynek a conversion of, you know, because he was, you know, a working astrophysicist for a lot of his life. And then he kind of begins this second track because he sees all this stuff and he feels compelled that people have to know about this. He sees his work with Project Blue Book. So he sees varieties of ways that the government is covering it up. He basically says that there was another Project Blue Book person investigating this, a gentleman named Sergeant Moody. Hmm. And he basically says that Sergeant Moody had come to the conclusion that all UFOs were nothing, and he basically would then work backwards from that. So nothing anyone saw could be anything, so therefore it wasn't anything. That seems unhelpful. Hmm. Yeah. It does. And, and Dr. Hynek, one of his kind of innovations with the UFO world was to really begin to apply the scientific method to a lot of these sightings. He himself debunks a lot of UFO sightings, but he eventually kind of comes to this core of sightings that are inexplicable by kind of more mundane or natural or terrestrial mm -hmm. means. I was going to say when you were saying that the guy was like, none of this could exist, therefore none of it does, that it was like, but the scientific method. And then you're like, but this guy does the scientific method. And it's like, oh, perfect. Right around the same page. Yep. There's a variety of interesting explanations. So with ufology, there's a whole side of skeptics that kind of get tossed out there to debunk incidents like this. And it's interesting to see kind of where some of them go. My personal favorite, uh, you know, there's varieties of accusations of hoaxes and things like that, but they all kind of fly in the face of kind of the description, which is the craft that Zamora observes. We couldn't do that today with our technology. Mm. Making something 15 to 20 feet wide, levitate, hover silently, and then move away against the wind and disappear over the horizon in under five minutes. Yeah. You could not move a blimp that fast. <laughs> yeah. Against the wind. And none of the drones are that quiet. Yeah, like today we could probably, with a drone, get something approximating that. It's one of the things that comes up in UFO sightings a lot, because people would say, well, this is just a secret government aircraft. Like, okay, well, absolutely possible. But then we have to reckon with the idea that that aircraft now, what, 64 to 2013, 60 years later, mm -hmm. is still not public. Yeah. Yeah. And if they had the technology to do something like this, like they might not share like this exact thing, but if they had the technology to do it, mm -hmm. we would see it somewhere. It would have been used in the Cold War. Yeah. We would have seen yep. some aspects of it at least. And even today, like, right, they maybe could. Even if they could do something like that, I don't know that we actually have the technology to do all of those pieces from the silent, the hovering, the like particular ways that it impacted the ground, all of those things, like, yeah. This is a few years after. The Air Force, about six years after the Zamora incident, basically shuts down any investigation into UFOs with something called the Condon. This mm -hmm. was something that was convened at the end of 1969, went into early 1970, where the Air Force basically concludes any UFO investigation stating that every item or every incident they investigated could be explained under one of four categories, either misidentification of natural phenomena, misidentification of terrestrial aircraft, hoaxes, or, and I will quote here, the product of an unwell mind. Ugh. So basically they say everything we've investigated, 
including this incident, this was investigated by the Air Force, mm -hmm. falls under one of these four categories. Now, I can look at this and go, this one doesn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what this was, but it's definitely not one of those four things. And, and so you kind of get this core of incidents where they resist any of those kind of natural explanations. I still have no idea what on earth Lonnie Zamora saw in that Arroyo in 1964. He would, until his dying day, maintain what he said and saw is what he said and saw. Mm -hmm. He refused to talk about it after about three weeks in, and if anybody called him up, he would just tell them to go away. He eventually mm -hmm. gets literally harassed so much about this that he quits being a police officer and finishes his life managing the town's wastewater plant. <laughs> but he still, throughout all of it, kind of holds to, you know, I saw what I saw. And I would agree with Dr. Hynek on this sighting that doesn't fall under one of those categories. And I may not know what it is, but I know it wasn't that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I wonder about how they justify Zamora's sighting and encounter as one of those things. And like, right when you were like, these are the four categories. And when you got to the unwell mind, I was like, that's what it is. Because he is very devout Catholic and Latino, probably that's like how they justify dismissing it. Right, like that, oh, it's just like a superstitious, religious person. Hmm. Yep, I don't ever recall them putting his faith as a question, but basically they come back and, and the skeptics will claim, one of my favorite skeptical claims is, first people would say it's a hoax, but they kind of butt up against this. Like if you look in like all the government investigations, all the files, to a person, they all meet with Zamora and basically just say, he's not making it up. Mm -hmm. He is accurately reporting what he saw. Yeah. Now, we can disagree that with his interpretation of what he saw, that when he saw two people, did he actually see two people, or was it a trick of the light, or was it this, or was mm -hmm. it that? But the skeptics, when they come in, some of my favorite ones, Donald Menzel, noted UFO skeptic, first claims it's a hoax, and then kind of he gets pushed back on that, and he says, okay, okay, okay. it wasn't a hoax, it was a dust devil. What is a dust devil? A little mini oh, tornado. Okay. So, you know, he saw some wind, kind of dust devil, wind mini tornado kind of swirling around in an arroyo and mistook it for a large metallic object with two figures in white coveralls out front. Yeah. <laughs> the dust devil burned some vegetation, busted indentations in the ground, you know, as dust devils do. <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah. And you had brought up, was he having an experience? Like, was he... And, and you can filter this perhaps even going back through, like, the the religious lens like was he seeing something that wasn't actually there because that's probably the most compelling explanation but this is where the investigation matters so mm -hmm. much because with a lot of ufo encounters there's a delay in reporting mm -hmm. you know somebody sees something and then days weeks months years later we actually hear about mm -hmm. it. they finally report it to somebody well know, after the evidence is with gone. this yeah exactly but with this he had a captain from the U.S. Army, commander of a local base, and an FBI agent interviewing him less than two hours after the craft departed. And seeing the marks. Yep, they're seeing the marks. And, you know, various debunkers will try to explain the marks away. If you listen to the like a skeptoid about this, they will say this was all done as a prank by college students on Lonnie Zamora. <laughs> that just... Now... If they could, as a prank, make essentially a, a dirigible fly against the wind at 
you know, 60, 100 miles an hour, you know, they could probably make a lot of money in the private sector with that prank. <laughs> yeah. Not to mention burning a bunch of vegetation and then having it be ice cold afterwards. And I may or may not have mentioned this, but the military, when they get there, like Zamora and Chavez didn't do a lot of movement down in kind of that area. Yeah. And this is the desert. Mm -hmm. and this is sand. And the military did not observe footprints other than the ones that would like be explained by Zamora and Chavez going down into mm -hmm. there. So, and this is a sandy desert. You can track people running and moving in the desert and they're on site two hours after this happens. So there's nobody else coming into the site. So there's mm -hmm. no, and they're not seeing these tracks, but that is still probably the most common skeptical explanation is, well, he was pranked because nobody who investigates this case looks at him and says, oh, no, he's lying. But yeah. it wasn't that. Yeah, that is a fascinating story. And now you have me here being like, well, <laughs> I don't know. While we're at it, actually, Rory, I think you have another story of a religiously connected UFO. Ooh. I do. And this story, I would... I would say it's controversial to call it a UFO story because everything about this takes place through an explicitly religious lens. Mm. And I'm going to talk about Our Lady of Fatima, mm. which is something that took place starting in the spring of 1916 when three Catholic children, they were shepherds in a small town in Portugal near Fatima, mm -hmm. they encounter over numerous incidents visions of the Virgin Mary who is later known as Our Lady of Fatima. Mm -hmm. Basically, I think there are, I believe, seven individual visitations where these children who are themselves very young. So the children who see Our Lady of Fatima, they are eight or nine or ten years old. I'm not sure of their exact ages, but somewhere mm -hmm. around there. So they're very young. And they have an, a set of six sightings of her where they go, they talk with her. They describe her as clothed in white, she explicitly identifies herself as the Virgin Mary. She gives them visions of heaven and hell. She actually gives them three prophecies. But as she's kind of making these prophecies, where this kind of becomes, at least controversially, a UFO encounter is the children say that the Virgin Mary is going to appear at Cova de Iria in Portugal on a certain day at a certain time. And 30,000 to 40,000 people show up to witness this. This is a huge thing that comes up and happens. So 30 or 40,000 people show up to this place at this time. Mm -hmm. And something really interesting happens because people see something. Something happens. And I'll give you kind of a, an idea of what they see. So this is typically called the miracle of the sun. A variety of witness accounts are collected. And I will point out some people in the crowd saw absolutely nothing while this was occurring. So some people experienced nothing, including believers experienced nothing. And then you also have people who were not believers who were just there because it's an event, genuinely see mm. something. And I'll give you a couple of descriptions of what people kind of said that they saw. The sun at one moment was surrounded with scarlet flame at another in yellow and deep purple, and seemed to be in an exceedingly swift and whirling movement. At times appeared to be loosened from the sky and to be approaching the earth, strongly radiating. Another, the sun's disk did not remain immobile. Basically, they kind of come down to where they were gathered. It had been raining, 
and then suddenly the clouds broke and the sun appeared. And as soon as the sun appeared, it did weird things. And in one of what I think is one of the more interesting examples, a witness said that their wet clothes, because it had been raining, suddenly and completely dry, as if all the wet and muddy ground that had previously been soaked because of the rain that had been falling. So people who were wet, the sun comes down to them, dries them, and then goes back up to the sky. Kind of like the parting of the seas. They didn't walk across on mud. Yeah. Exactly. So people are reporting seeing weird things happening in the sky. There are plenty of photographs of this event. This is 1917. Photography was Mm -hmm. a thing. And no photographs show this. And similarly, we actually have a photograph of the sun from this time, and it looks completely Mm -hmm. normal. But not all the witnesses who were there reported seeing anything. Fascinating. And so this is one of those where all of this is filtered through a religious lens. But what the witnesses reported here is very similar to call them secular UFO events. Mm -hmm. But in this case, the witnesses interpreted it through the lens of faith in, in the Virgin Mary. Fascinating. And both this incident and the Lonnie Zamora incident are well known enough that they each have their own Wikipedia page, don't they? They do. And it's worth pointing out that the miracle of the sun has been, I confess, I don't know the exact terms, but has been confirmed as a genuine sighting or a genuine apparition of the Virgin Mary by the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And on the 100th year anniversary of it, Pope Francis made a pilgrimage to the site where it occurred. There's a a shrine been built there since. Interesting. Oh, wow. So the miracle of the sun is officially a miracle within the Catholic Church. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So we are nerds at church. So are there pop culture or media references to UFOs that you particularly love and or hate? <laughs> and why? Yes. So my favorite piece of UFO media is definitely the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I believe, okay, you will probably hold that this is, in fact, a horror movie. (laughs) I have agreed to appear on the Horror Nerds at Church episode about it, and I will explain my theory about that then. We actually, (laughs) Pace and I just talked about it. I don't know when we're going to do it, but probably we will invite both of you, because that would be hilarious. (laughs) Wonderful. Yep. so I will skip over that, but Close Encounters of the Third Kind, it was actually done with the help of Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who we've talked about. He actually has a cameo in the movie. See, Hmm. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Steven Spielberg movie. Steven Spielberg and Dr. J. Allen Hynek were personal friends. Mm. Spielberg himself has something of an interest in the UFO phenomena. Close Encounters of the Third Kind being his kind of big, the magnum opus of UFO movies. But you can actually see Dr. Hynek in the movie at the end. There's the scene where, spoiler alert, aliens show up. <laughs> and there is a man with a Van Dyke smoking a pipe. And that is Dr. J. Allen Hynek. He sees the aliens. He takes the pipe away from his mouth. It's about a two-second shot. But that is him in that. And he was the consultant on that movie. Mm. Now, it is really hard to capture high strangeness or aliens in movies, in fiction or nonfiction, because the encounters themselves are often so intensely personal. Mm. They're mm-hmm. internal. But I would put that out there as definitely capturing the UFO zeitgeist from around that time. The second one that I would put out there that's really good is Small Town Monsters Invasion at Chestnut Ridge. That is the bulletproof Bigfoot mm. that I talked about. That's a documentary that talks about this incident. I think does a very good job of presenting the overall environment for it. And if you ask me for something I mm-hmm. hate in UFO media, 
ancient aliens. I cannot stand <laughs> ancient aliens. Giorgio Sukalos always acting with his Centauri hair like he's holding a watermelon to make his point. And no, I absolutely reject the ancient alien hypothesis, the whole point that humanity is not capable of doing these. Very often, the ancient aliens hypothesis boils down to white people didn't do it, and so therefore it must have been alien. The UFO type of situation that always pops into my head is a Far Side comic, which I'll talk about later, but also the like Simpsons version of the aliens and particularly yes. like when they're both running for president or whatever and then somebody's like well we'll just have a human run as the third party and then they're like third parties never win don't vote for them and so people actually vote for the aliens and the aliens take over the country and it's, it's, it's... don't blame me i voted for kodos yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. although my favorite simpsons ufo is their x-files crossover mm, yeah where Whenever someone asks, well, why don't the aliens just land and reveal themselves? And I've always thought of the exactly what happens when Mr. Burns is supposedly an alien in that. He comes down, he's glowing from medical mm -hmm. treatments, and he says, I bring you love. And then one of the characters says, he's bringing love. Don't let him get away. And somebody <laughs> else screams, break his legs. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I walked out, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, that is exactly what we would do if an alien landed. It's like, okay, we're going to capture you and put you in a cage. That's, yeah. uh... And I think that's, that's like the most common in sci-fi shows and stuff. Like I think about Doctor Who and most of the interventions that Doctor Who has is stopping violence, either from humans against non-human beings or from non-human beings sure. against humans. And like that's that's all of those encounters that happen on Earth are like that sort of a thing where it's like maybe don't have violence be the first step, which is something that God, I wish we actually, you know, had that as our like murder bad. Yeah. And this week murder very bad. I'm just like, why? Why is the first step violence? There is a whole genre of UFO stories, which is UFO shows up at nuclear weapon location and disables nuclear weapons mm -hmm. there's stories of ufos showing up over missile silos and all the equipment going haywire and stopping working there's alleged videos out there of ufos going around a nuclear missile that was being fired in a test the ufo shows up orbits the nuclear missile stops at like 12 3 6 and 9 o'clock and then the missile falls out of the sky hmm. rather famous ufo story there's this whole genre of, at least allegedly, UFOs showing up, stopping nuclear weapons from functioning properly, and then going away. Yeah. The aliens want us to not destroy ourselves. God bless them. It is a common refrain. Yeah. God bless them, because we're certainly not doing a great job of it. Yeah. If anyone is an X-Files fan, or isn't, and wants to get a pure, distilled version of the UFO experience... I would highly recommend watching Season 3, Episode 20, Jose Chung's From Outer Space. It is, of any story that is they've ever told, that purely just in one single episode, it's a Monster of the Week type episode, so it's not part of the, their ongoing narration, tells the story of Dana Scully goes to interview Jose Chung, who is the wonderful Charles Nelson Riley. And he has written a book called From Outer Space. When she's reading the cover, it's very clearly a parody of Whitley Strieber's Communion, which is a very famous UFO book. And basically it, in 
40 minutes, it demonstrates high strangeness in a way that no other piece of media that I've ever seen has. Plus, it features appearances from Jesse Ventura and Alex. Oh, okay. All right. I might have to check it out. It really captures how different people experience different events from multiple points of views with unreliable narrators. Mm. Absolutely amazing episode. Nice. Nice. Cool. Now, as we move into the readings for this Ascension Day, our first reading is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The sequel to the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts tells the story of the early church in the days just after Jesus returned to heaven. So one of the themes in this passage is kind of a delayed reaction. It seems like the disciples are like a step slower than the things are actually happening. And so I was thinking about it a bit like Wiley Coyote, not so much on the like running off the edge of the cliff and taking a second to fall, but like the catching on a beat late that where he's standing right now is under an anvil and it's about to crush him. Right. But like the disciples are like standing there and looking and Jesus is already gone. And then the angels are like, Hey y'all, Jesus is gone. <laughs> Come back to earth now. Yeah. There's a piano directly over your head. Right. Yeah. I absolutely adore this story. It is such a interesting example of how multiple people can in a moment have their metaphorical life and the ground fall out from mm. um, that everything they thought they knew that was true in an instant shifts and to pull it towards you know ufos that is something that you hear in a lot of the stories from people who have the experience like mm -hmm. i never believe but or i never thought ufos were real until yeah. and you have in acts a similar story where obviously one's religious one's not but the very ground falls out from underneath the ufo encounter these experiencers who have something happen to them and then they have to reckon with the reality of what they've seen yeah 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 i think about zamora and the like i thought being a cop was a good job then i realized that they're harassing me and he saw that and it would have been the easiest thing in the world for him to say you know five years ten years later yeah you know what i made it up stop Stop making fun of me for it. It was dumb, yeah. but he never yeah. did. He saw this thing that defied explanation, and he could not deny what he mm -hmm. had seen. He said, I saw this. I didn't lie. This is what I saw. Yeah. He didn't know what it meant. And I, I see in that parallels to kind of the messianic mm -hmm. secret that we see, where the disciples <laughs> see something. They see these things, and they don't know what it means, but they know what they saw. Yeah. I saw this. And eventually they... Together, unfortunately, because Lani Zamora was treated very poorly by everyone involved mm -hmm. in this, he eventually or very quickly stopped talking about this kind of thing. So we don't really have his later, you know, reflections on what he saw or what he believed beyond what he reported initially. But in this, I see somebody who had faith. Mm -hmm. You know, he saw this and he said, "I don't know what this means, but I saw this, and I'm not lying." And I think you see in some of these Bible stories, well no, you must have seen this, or you must have seen that. You couldn't have seen this. Or you see in earlier Bible stories, like people, Jesus's family saying he's insane, he's crazy. Mm -hmm. And I see in a lot of these UFO stories, you have witnesses come forward who say at personal risk, at, at risking their, their lives, their reputations, sure. and say, this is what I saw. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what I saw, but I saw, here's my description. And I see in the ascension 
of Jesus, the resurrection, I see a similar thing happen with the believers where they see Jesus, Thomas touches mm -hmm. the wounds. I see this happen. And they then have to reckon with and figure out what on earth that yeah. means. Yeah. yeah. So as we jump into the verses, in verse 3, we read, After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And the he here is Jesus. And this is a lot harder to do in the modern world, <laughs> as it turns out. This is not, in fact, the only story of someone having to do this. But if you have a spare minute, look up the story of French woman Jean Pouchain who, thanks to the actions of a disgruntled former employee in 2016, she spent five years legally dead Wow! in France, in the modern world, huh. very recently. And because the media only cares about the bizarre stories and not the happy endings, the only news story I could find with some resolution to her story was actually in French, which I had to use Google Translate to figure out, <laughs> because my high school French is terrible. Mm -hmm. But she was apparently able to finally get a legal ID in January 2022, and her story has started to come to a bit of a close. But we can include the link to that French news story in the episode notes. Yeah. And she is not the only person this happened to. I also saw a story of a guy in India who spent, I think, like 20 years trying to prove that, no, I still exist. I'm not dead. Wow. And that was apparently made into a Bollywood movie. So <laughs> I feel like I always hear about the flip side of that, of like people who have died and then people like assuming those identities in spy movies sure. and stuff. Sure. But fascinating. Yeah, no, this sounds more complicated, and also it has to be a truly bizarre and unsettling experience to go through. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And then in verse 9, we read, When Jesus had said this, as the disciples were watching, Jesus was lifted up, and a cloud took Jesus out of their sight. This particular account of the ascension, because we'll get two in today's readings, this one definitely sounds like the aliens from Nope which is a fantastic movie that we are going to be covering for Horror Nerds at Church. But the aliens just look like they are a cloud. And so just thinking about like, Jesus must have made eye contact with them and they got mad because that's how it works in Nope, at least. <laughs> nope is a wonderful movie and one of the, probably the best adaptation of High Strangeness in media borrows very heavily from, you can Google this, a set of stories that takes place at a location in Utah that has come to be known as Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah. So our second reading today is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. The author prays for the people of the Church of Ephesus to receive blessings from God so that they may have hope. So... One of the themes in this passage is the idea of power, that the author keeps coming back to the power, not power over or power outside of, but power in God and the power of God in people. And the way that it's talked about in Ephesians reminded me of the way that the dauntless, at the heart of who the faction is before it kind of goes off the rails, but like in the Divergent Yeah, series. in Divergent. The dauntless understanding of power and courage is that it is in the face of fear, not in the absence of fear. And there's like that particular like power in the face of fear, power in the face of suffering, faith in the face of suffering. It's not that you're not afraid, but that you are afraid and you still do it and you still whatever. Like, sure. Something I've always found interesting, I can't remember who said this, but 
they said that the the coward and the hero feel the same thing in their mm-hmm. heart, mm-hmm. and the only difference is how each of them reacts yeah. to it. Yeah, like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then in verse eighteen, we read, "So that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which." he has called you what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints and when it comes to remembering what the riches of the glorious inheritance are please remember that these are much more along the lines of the contents of the vault of the rich family in the movie of richie rich rather than just being piles of money the vault of the rich family held family pictures and mementos instead of the money that they had which was of course in the bank where it belonged mm-hmm. and this also reminds me of the story of saint lawrence and what he thought were the treasures of the church oh, that yeah. we told in a recent episode yeah I was also thinking of Casper, that the treasure that is in the vault in Casper is a baseball glove and baseball. Oh, Casper. Yeah. Oh, it's nice. Spoilers, you know, Mm -hmm. but yeah. And then in verse 21, we read, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So then it begs the question, is it also above the one ring to rule them all? Or is that above <laughs> which which one actually reigns supreme probably god not the ring but still. i mean i i hope not so hard yeah i would hope but you know you never know with that tolkien character well he was catholic so actually yes i think we do but <laughs> and then in our gospel reading for this episode is luke chapter 24 verses 44 through 53 Weeks after the resurrection, Jesus leads the disciples to Bethany to give them a blessing and ascend to heaven. They return to Jerusalem, secure in the knowledge that the Holy Spirit will arrive soon. So one of the most obvious themes for this passage is the ascension. And this one sounds more like one of the far side cartoons that I was talking about earlier, where Jesus like backs up behind the bush and then you just see the UFO and the beam of light and Jesus is like, floating up in the beam of light and the like stereotypical Mm. ufo above him yeah sure that's how i'm going to like imagine it in In which case and in verse 45 we read then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and please remember that this verse is a metaphor about expanding people's understanding of god and not in any way literal there is a fairly traumatic matrix animated short that sort of explores how the robots would have originally gotten control of the human minds and it is not the kind of thing that you want to watch if you are at all prone to nightmares Hmm. good to know Mm -hmm. i did not know there were even matrix animated shorts so if you bought the original movie on dvd they came with that okay and yeah many of them are interesting but that one in particular is fairly traumatic gotcha duly noted i will keep that in mind in my continuing horror pad wannery. And then in verse 47, we read, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in Jesus name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And so I just had this image for this of like a map with Jerusalem. That's like a finished map, right? But then the like wet on wet watercolor technique where like, there's just like this puddle of water, basically all over the whole thing it's all wet and then you just take like a little bit of ink or some paint on a paintbrush on a wet like watercolor on a paintbrush and just touch it down in jerusalem and then you can like watch the color spread all over 
the map. It just seemed like a really cool. That sounds interesting, but I think whenever I've seen that used in a movie or something like that, it's always been sinister in nature. Oh. Like about a plague or a war or huh. death or, yeah. Yeah. I was... But it does, like, using it for the opposite reason, there's no reason you couldn't. Yeah. So. I was thinking of it strictly from an artistic point of view, but yeah, I can see how that sure. would be also sinister. And now for our most out of this world segment, <laughs> let's make a Muppets musical. Rory, did you have any thoughts about casting Muppets or token human actors or even maybe about the sets for the readings we had for today? So there is within the Muppets from Space, the <laughs> sixth Muppets feature film features, if you actually look at the, the cover for it, you see Gonzo being hit by a beam from a UFO and ascending into upper up into space, presumably being abducted by the UFO itself. Mm. Mm -hmm. So there is a, and then later on you see a wonderful bit of casting where Gonzo shows up on a fake show called UFO Mania, and in stereotypical fashion, Gonzo is not just wearing a tinfoil helmet, but has in fact wrapped himself in tinfoil. <laughs> Nice. I love that. So it's more or less a parody of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's it's a mm, wonderful yeah. movie. Excellent. That is fantastic. I was thinking of, I know that Miss Piggy's family is like a bunch of space pigs. There's like something with a bunch of space pigs because I've seen the picture that also would work. I was also thinking of like a UFO that's a cookie and like cookie monster being abducted <laughs> or like being from that particular or maybe that's where cookie monsters yeah. yeah 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 i think my biggest question about gonzo being abducted is like where does that say he came from in the first place or was he just as the men in black movie says about elvis going home mm. but yeah as i look at the story of of the ascension from the gospel of luke i'm just thinking about you know seeing jesus ascend must have been a fairly you might say highly strange and maybe even a deeply emotional kind of moment and so i was wondering what muppet would i want with me if i had just witnessed that and i think the answer is fozzy bear mm. I, I think fozzy would be able to help us calm down and come out of the freak out and get on with doing the next thing and maybe making light of ourselves a little bit in the process. He's pretty good at that. Yeah, he is. He is really wonderful at that. I like that. that yeah. Call. Yeah. That's, that's some pretty good casting for yeah. such an out of this world experience. <laughs> so Rory, any other thoughts on life, the universe and everything? So I think I would just kind of close with saying one of the things I love about UFOs is it takes us beyond the material mm -hmm. world. I think the modern culture and science would like to push us to the idea that we live in a clockwork universe, that you know, everything is explainable and explained. We just need to find out why. Mm -hmm. I think UFOs in a secular way remind me a lot of what speaks to me deeply as a Christian, which is the mystery of it. The idea that the world is more than just what we see, that we can have an experience of God that is not explainable by atoms moving in a certain way or doing this or doing that. And seeing a UFO is an invitation to that mystery in the same way that having an experience of God is an invitation to belief, to experience the world in a new way or in a wider way, in a way that inspires wonder mm -hmm. 
as opposed to something that seeks to take away wonder and make everything yeah. mundane. That's beautiful. Sure. And do you maybe have some podcasts to recommend to people who might want to oh, learn yeah. more? Absolutely. So I would recommend mm-hmm. two podcasts to anyone who is interested in the UFO phenomenon. The, the first I would recommend is Our Strange Skies, Rob Christofferson's podcast. I actually helped him research the Lani Zamora case for an episode of that mm. podcast. Rob is an amazing UFO researcher. What he does is he presents received narrative of different UFO cases. So you're not going to get a lot of theories, although Rob himself is wonderfully understanding of the phenomena itself, Mm -hmm. but he likes to present the stories of UFOs and let the stories speak for themselves. He does a wonderful Mm -hmm. job of it. On the other side, if someone would like a little more of, I don't want to say skeptical, but a little bit more of an academic look, there is a podcast called The Saucer You mentioned that, I think, earlier, yeah. Yep, I did mention that one earlier. It is by a professor named Aaron Gullies. He is a history professor somewhere in Michigan, and his podcast is basically about the historiography of UFOs. So he will tackle a part of the phenomena, a story, a person, a personality, and present how that narrative came Mm. to be. His tagline is, and I just, I love it, no belief, no debunking, snark when justified. (laughs) So he is not afraid, because if you look at UFOs, you will find immediately a ton of people who are not serious. Maybe they're the ancient aliens people who are, you know, trying to sell books. Mm -hmm. Maybe they are just people who like to tell tall tales. So you will see, and he is not afraid to take those people to task, Mm -hmm. although he tries to do so in a very neutral way but he also holds open you know the possibility of mystery or something different happening he doesn't talk much about kind of what he thinks but he does not dismiss people's stories out of hand but he looks at them very much through the lens of a historian Mm -hmm. how did this story come about where did it come from what are our sources and for anyone looking for two different perspectives into the ufo world our strange skies and the saucer life are absolutely indispensable. Nice, nice. We'll link to them in our episode description for folks so they can... Absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Well, thank you for joining us. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me. And thank you to our listeners for joining us as well. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the seventh Sunday of Easter. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Nerds at Church. Or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our uncut guest episodes and interviews, live Q&As, and more, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerdsatchurch. It's cheaper than having to change your job because of harassment because of an experience you had with something unexplainable. <laughs> Absolutely. Also, let us know on Facebook or Twitter who you would cast for Let's Make a Muppets Musical for this episode. As the ancient Christian said, Pox Fobiscum. <laughs>